Welcome to the Friday subscribers only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor in chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Hey, Sean and Stuart, great to be in conversation with you again this week. Hey, great to be here. Hey, guys, good to see you. Well, uh, double-barreled show as always. We're going to spend the first half of the program t- updating our listeners and the Hub community on the CPC leadership race. We're trying to do that each and every week of this race, give you hopefully some new analysis and insights into this contest, which is going to have a you know, big role uh, to play in terms of the future course, the Conservative Party of Canada, but also the country's political trajectory as a whole, and a lot of the big policy issues that we're going to be digging into at the Hub in the months to come. On the second half of the show, I want to spend some time on this extraordinary rate hike, fully 50 basis points. You've got to go back uh, two decades to find another time when the Bank of Canada has jacked rates uh, in this increment. So let's unpack that. What are the potential ramifications of uh, a rapidly raising uh, rate for borrowing and lending in heavily indebted Canada. But Stuart, I want to come to you first because you're our guy on the ground in Ottawa who's been providing hub readers every week with a kind of digest, a behind-the-scenes debrief on the week that was in the CPC leadership race. So What's the key uh, event or trend or two that you've been following that you think our readers and listeners should be paying attention to also? Yeah, I, I think we talked last week about the the crowds that Pierre Polyev is drawing. And, you know, I, like, I don't think we need to go over that again, but it is that's the thing that's happening. You know, thousands of people in Alberta. Um, and then the question of what does that mean? Um, so that's going to keep happening. We're going to have to just keep an eye on that. And we're going to have to figure out if you know, maybe we won't know until September. Um, is this the sign that he's just dominant? And part of the reason we don't know is that so much of this happens behind the scenes. And, you know, this is the thing I hated as a reporter is trying to figure out what was going on in a thing like this, because, you know, everyone's spinning you, they're not quite lying to you, but they're not totally telling you everything. And I'm kind of a trusting person. And I have to like, push back all of my natural instincts to, mm-hmm. to get to the story. And you never feel like you do because it's, it's so hard. And sometimes the campaigns don't even know the story themselves. So um, that's what's going on right now. There was, I'll, I'll just put this out there and you guys can maybe take a bite on it. But this was in the political playbook this morning. Um, Patrick Brown, who I don't, I haven't even seen a headline with Patrick Brown's name in it recently, but he is, according to political playbook, attending 10 to 20 events per day. Um, challenge any of our listeners to name a single event um, that they can put Patrick Brown at. That doesn't mean it's not happening. It means it's happening and we're just not really learning anything about it. He also starts his day at 7.30 a.m. dialing into Newfoundland and Labrador and ends his calls at 1.30 a.m. in British Columbia. Um, So, you know, putting aside maybe some 
you know, like optimistic spin from the campaign. Like it's still a long day. And that's what all of these guys are doing. They're making phone calls to members. They're trying to get votes. And it is so hard for us to know anything about that. So that's what's going to be going on for the next few months. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, kind of fog of war that descends over these contests. And Sean, let me come to you and get your reactions to two things. You know, one, I've, I've heard people say this week about Pierre Polyev's big events, you know, look at Preston Manning, look at uh, Maxime Bernier more recently, big events don't necessarily translate into, um, in this case, you know, memberships, you know, what's the conversion like? So I wonder what your thoughts are on that. And then let's talk about the Shrey campaign, because there's a new tone there really coming out swinging against Polyev on mm. uh, his supposed, um, I can only describe it the way it was characterized as kind of immaturity on issues related to the economy, finance, Bitcoin, the central bank, uh, a kind of ringing uh, clarion call from Jean Charest, uh defending the uh, the Laurentian pedigrees of uh, various key Canadian institutions and figures in the face of Pierre Polyev's assault on the gatekeepers. <laughs> Very yeah. dramatic. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack. Um, maybe I'll, I'll I'll focus in particular on your, your comments about um, the, the the tougher tone and, and posture from Charest, who started this campaign saying that he wouldn't you know, that he would stay above the fray and, and that he would be in effect the kind of elder statesman. And, you know, it seems to me in light of the, the growing momentum behind the Polyev campaign has decided um, he has no choice but to put on the boxing gloves. The, his, his comments last uh, Sunday about uh, the Freedom Convoy and uh, the perception that Polyev was too close uh, to the, the blockade in, in Ottawa, um, you know, it seems to me is is about a month too late. Like there was an opportunity in the moment um, to make that case, and there was remember there was reasonably high prospects that that the uh, eventual um, law enforcement intervention was going to produce violence. And in that case, uh, it seems to me there there was an opportunity for someone like Sheree to raise these issues and to put Polyev on the defensive, especially in the event. Um, that things went south, um, that they ultimately didn't, that the blockade was, was broken up with, uh, in a mostly peaceful way. Um, and, then, and then to wait a month afterwards to launch these attacks just seems um, you know, a, a, a moment uh, too slow uh, on, on the part of the Shrey campaign, which you know, for better or for worse, it seems to be a, a common trend so far in this race. Um, and so that's, I guess, a long way of saying, I'm not sure, Rudyard and Stewart, um, that uh, these attacks on the part of Sheree, um help them very much. More than anything, it seems to me, it, it, it reflects the fact that, that their campaign is interpreting this race the way most of the rest of us are, which is to say, Polyev is in the driver's seat. And the massive event that we saw in Calgary this week, uh, one of the biggest that I've seen in a, in a long, long time, um, um, seems to seems to affirm that. Mm -hmm. What's your take, uh, Stuart, on how the Shrey campaign is, you know, kind of repositioning here against, again, what is, uh, it, whether the events translate into membership sales or not, I noticed that the, the Pierre Polyev campaign is saying that they are, but as you said, there's a lot of spin going on here. Even if they're not, they're still 
creating very skillfully, especially on social media, this perception of kind of energy excitement. It yes. it, ha it reminds you know us all of, in fact, uh, Justin Trudeau in you know his pre leader uh, liberal leadership uh, bid. And then in that contest, that similar sense of kind of energy, crowds coming out, people excited to meet the candidate. Uh, you don't always see that in Canadian politics, which is often kind of like watching paint dry. Um, so, you know, how does the Shrey campaign push back against this? Brown's, I guess, chosen just to ignore it. Um, is this a wise strategy or not to try to pull Pierre into a kind of fray. And Pierre did punch back. We saw a kind of pointed tweet there calling out Charest's um, uh, role as a, a paid lobbyist for Huawei, the Chinese technology company, uh, during the period when the two Michaels were imprisoned in China. Yeah, I think that that it definitely is a sign that they feel like they have to do this. And, you know, we talked a little bit last week about what a Polyev leadership would look like going up against Justin Trudeau. And I think we kind of zeroed in on the temperament issue as probably his primary weakness that he'll have to overcome there. And I think it is interesting, though, that they went there because that is probably what will come up in a general election against the liberals and the NDP. I don't necessarily think right now it's being seen as a failing by conservative party members that Polyev is a fighter and that he's not willing to you know, back down. Um, so it is not a sell to the existing base. It is once again, you know, something they're selling to these new members that are worried um, and are maybe looking for some kind of middle ground. Um, it is worth noting that, you know, Patrick Brown and John Charest have come out sort of applauding the uh, liberal, um, you know, provincial deals with the childcare program. Um, that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, it, it shows you what they're going for here. And it shows you that, you know, they're fighting a different battle than the one uh, Polyev is. May I just, uh, may I just raise mm -hmm. a, a point here, guys? Um, you, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, because I think I've made it a few weeks in a row. Uh, so I apologize in advance uh, to listeners. But you know, one thing we've we've talked a lot about is the um, political power um, reflected in Polyev's narrative around gatekeepers and freedom, and that the Shrey campaign continues to struggle to match with its own kind of compelling way to, to think and talk about itself and its proposition. That was really reflected this week um, in a you know, at least in, in Canadian political circles, a high profile debate between two campaign surrogates from the Shrey campaign and the Polyev campaign. And what struck me about that exchange um, on uh, cable television was that when push came to shove, the Shrey campaign surrogate um, main case was that Shrey had been really important in the 1995 referendum. Um, you know, guys, I was 13 in 1995. Um, you know, he may have played an important role, but that just doesn't resonate with me at all. And I suspect that's the case for a lot of people following uh, this leadership race. And so it, it kind of comes back to the main point that Polyev seems to have kind of cracked a, a, a nut uh, on this issue of gatekeepers in general and housing affordability in particular. It relates, of course, to the, our second conversation today around interest rates. And I, I kind of get, you guess, get the sense, guys, that He's found kind of political magic here. And he, right now, the only person that can defeat him is himself. Um, and that kind of comes back to the temperament issue that we spoke about last week.
So Stuart, maybe just to wrap up this portion, you know, it's an interesting question that Sean raises about, you know, the importance of having a message, having something we like at the hub, which is called policy, you know, or the beginnings of policy, proto-policy versus not. And you could look at, let's say, you know, the whole kind of Trump cycle in U.S. politics. And you had all these thoughtful people like Marco Rubio and others that came out with, you know, big policy visions for America and for conservatism, ultimately, you know, left in the dust by the sheer kind of rhetorical brilliance of, of Trump, his pugilistic kind of excellence honed on, you know, cable television and uh, The Apprentice. So what is your sense in Canada and in this race? I mean, do these things matter? Or, you know, is Patrick Brown in an interesting way, I don't know, channeling maybe a more authentic Canadian path to political power, which is just sheer organization, which he is, you know, he is a renowned for his determination and tenacity in his various political fights that he's been in over the course of his career. Yeah, I, I don't want to punt too hard on this, but I think this race is such a good little laboratory for this. But maybe what I will say is that, you know, we um, are policy guys and journalists. And I think maybe you guys have had the same experience as me where you get really into policy and then some strategist type tells you, uh, you know, that we can't talk about that on the campaign trail. Like nobody will get it. Even if we want to do it, we have to find some symbolic way of communicating it. And I think that there is a lot of symbolism in the Polyev campaign. And I, I would love to get inside his head and just see how surprised he personally is by all of this. Um, I think there's, you know, it's probably even odds that he's as shocked by the crowds as everybody else is. Um, sometimes these things just happen. And I think we're also like, let, let us never forget on every topic we discuss that we're in the middle or coming to the end of a pandemic. We're still in the part of it where it's affecting our psyches. I think part of this phenomenon with the crowds is down to that. Um, but I think, you know, if I were betting on this, I would say those crowds matter to me a lot more than whoever's organizing really well right now. Yeah. That's a good insight. You know, you just think of all those really close gubernatorial races in the United States over the last period of time, you know, Virginia, an upset, Ter Terry McAuliffe losing, uh, New Jersey, there was almost a switch up there. I think there's a lot of pent up anti-incumbent anger, anger at the lockdowns, anger at the controls. And I don't think that's just an American phenomenon. I think that is evidenced in a broad section, a broad swath of the Canadian public. Okay, when we come back from this short break, we're gonna talk five zero fifty basis points on the board. The Bank of Canada gets off the sidelines and seems to get serious finally about inflation and the effects of higher rates on an economy that's running hot. We're gonna have that discussion for you right after this break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate, We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. 
Okay, welcome back to the weekly Hub Roundtable with Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, Sean Spear, our editor-at-large. We tackle two topics each week. We just did a wrap-up on the CPC leadership campaign the week that was. Let's now dig into the big kind of policy story of this week, which surely is the 50-point hike in the overnight lending rate by the Bank of Canada. Uh, I think surprising many uh, that this actually happened. There was, you know, chatter about it over the last couple of weeks, but they've gone and done it, Sean. And um, what is your sense? Is this kind of coming to religion on inflation late and reluctantly? It kind of has that that feel to me. This is a very cautious, you know, at times I think overly timid central bank, maybe somewhat cowed by Canada's super high debt levels uh, and the effects that higher rates could have on the economy. I, I think that's right. And um, and unprepared to acknowledge um, that it was wrong, you know, that um, claims that uh, that inflation was transitory um, and simply a function of the pandemic um, uh, was was incorrect. You know, that's reflected in this week's monetary policy report which anticipates even with these rate hikes, elevated inflation rates through 2022. Um, you know, just one key point here I, I'd like to make Rudyard and, and Stuart, and then maybe get out of the way for, for Rudyard, uh, who, who, who listeners will know, feel strongly about these issues. But even notwithstanding the rate hike yesterday, uh, Tiff Macklem, the, the bank governor, and you know, various journalists and, and other policy observers continue to make the case that this is fundamentally a supply issue, that um, that the supply bottlenecks caused in part by the pandemic are ultimately responsible for inflation in Canada and elsewhere, and that there's really no uh, responsibility borne by uh, the central bank and its extraordinary monetary policy over the past 24 months. And I would just say, um, on a podcast episode a couple of weeks ago, former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers took that issue on uh, directly. I won't read you his entire um, quote, but let me just read a key part. He said, uh, given what supply is, it's a task of demand to balance supply. And he goes on to say, so the job of demand managers, principally the Fed in the U.S. case, the Bank of Canada, of course, and ours, is to judge what supply is and calibrate appropriately. It's not an excuse for inflation to blame it on supply. It's a reality in the environment and you have to deal with it. It seems to me that continues to be uh, something that the Bank of Canada and, and others uh, following these issues don't seem to acknowledge that um, just because there have been supply issues, uh, which no one is contesting, doesn't mean the bank doesn't have some culpability here uh, because, of course, um, monetary policy needs to reflect the world as it is, not the world we want. I don't know, Rudyard, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it even goes back, you know, before COVID. I mean, really, since the great financial crisis, we've been running this experiment of, you know, ultra low rates, you know, some of the lowest rates, interest rates in 3000 years of human history. And I think it's it's never good to be an outrider. It's never good to be setting records uh, when it comes to something as fundamental as interest rates. And I guess what uh, two things that I think maybe are lost often in the noise of this debate is people need to understand just how important a kind of free floating interest rate is an interest rate that's not manipulated. That is how, in a sense, people price capital. That's how they assess risk. If they can say to themselves, OK, if I invest in this business, 
they're going to give me X percent of return over Y number of years. Or I can buy this super safe government bond, and I know I'm going to get Y over X number of years. And the difference between that safe, safe government bond versus whatever investment or other activity I might want to undertake with my money, that quantum is how you assess risk and return. And what happens to an economy when you have central banks stepping forward, and they have over the last 10 years, and then particularly over the last 24 months, buying up massive amounts of bonds through this quantitative easing program, they're suppressing rates. They're artificially lowering uh, the overnight, and in some cases, when they're purchasing bonds, longer duration uh, government-issued debt. And that really, to me, is is kind of mucking with the guts of capitalism because we we put up with all kinds of, let's face it, uh, dysfunctional things about capitalism, tragedy of the commons, uh, regulatory capture. Um, there's all kinds of things that capitalism does in our society which are not good and they have to be managed by government. And generally we do a pretty good job of that, but we put up with all those lousy things because it's the best system that we've ever come across, that we've ever devised to allow for society to efficiently and effectively allocate its resources across a complex system, especially if that system is a democracy, right? If you don't have autocratic central planning. So I think people need to often back away from these micro debates about interest rates up and down, quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, and just understand that we've been on a now a decade plus experiment of a kind of managed capitalism that rivals a lot of the central planning that we would rightly immediately call out as you know socialistic as state controlled it doesn't look like that it doesn't feel like that because it doesn't emerge from the politburo or some central committee but by stealth these central banks have both the united states europe especially japan canada they're to me they're they're creating all this noise around the signal of capitalism and that is i think fundamentally damaging to long-term wealth productivity uh so much of our society uh and it's a debate that we just don't ha seem to have Stuart. It, it seems to be as if this institution especially the bank of canada uh is kind of is it's not polite almost to discuss their mandate their role and whether these things are relative or realistic or not. And again, we're just talking about Pierre Paglia, but he is one of the few political figures in Canada that has very directly taken on the central bank and its role over the last uh, period of time. Yeah, I, I would say also that part of this problem is that, you know, you have a press gallery that doesn't really understand it. Um, they're all kind of generalists who, you know, write about politics. And I love these conversations because we go from you guys to me, the dumbass in the suburbs who's getting mad at the gas pump. And that is like exactly what happens uh, in our discussions here is there are a few reporters who get it and will write about this in tends to be more obscure ways. Um, and then this is how populism works. Um, it's almost like a taboo issue. And then someone yeah. captures it really yeah. well and explains it to people. Um, and then you have all of a sudden, you know, Bank of Canada discussion at a 5,000 person rally. Um, I think <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be one of those things to watch, right? It's it's something that he's captured. And I wonder how much of it is actually part of what is his appeal, Polyev, um, or is it the other things, the housing, the more direct things that are tied into this, but, you know, you can piece them out as singular issues. 
Um, I think one thing that occurs to me too is that we have an all right economy right now. Um, the problem is it doesn't feel like it. And, you know, a, a lot of us, um, you know, if you were a white collar worker during the pandemic, you were living in a very uneasy time, but, you know, our daycare closed and we got that money back. We had to have our child at home while we worked and it sucked, but we were piling up cash with the way a lot of people were at that time. A lot of people came out of the pandemic okay and with some reserves. They didn't feel like it though. And now it still doesn't feel like it. And we just have this weird mismatch uh, where people feel very gloomy. Um, and I think that is maybe a problem with our you know, political elites, the strategists, whoever, they look at the numbers and they think everything should be okay. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I know for sure that Pierre Polyev understands is that people are not okay. They don't feel okay about the economy. Yeah, sentiment is very low. Um, one interesting factoid coming out of this 50 basis point hike, uh, Sean, you know, there's roughly $1.8 trillion of mortgage debt in Canada, which is, again, we have some of the highest per capita mortgage debt in the world. It's really remarkable, significantly higher than the United States. Of that $1.8 trillion, 30%, it's an all-time high historically, are variable rate mortgages, which automatically reset around these higher rates. So what you're looking at, Sean, is the potential here. And I think that's why the bank is so was so cautious in its statement. Despite the 50 basis point hike, the statement that came out was the usual central bank speak, we'll be nimble, we'll adjust as we need, we will be responsive. Because surely, Sean, they know that the housing problem in Canada, and it is a problem, it is a bubble, we know this. It's, you know, Toronto is the second hottest market in the world, the top three in multiple, multiple studies. They know that if that corrects, there's no government program that's big enough to bail out the Canadian housing sector. And it's what, 15 to 20% if you want to be generous of our GDP, it's, it's become a complete monster that is just the engine, arguably, of Canada's economic growth for the last decade. Yeah, I think there are big political economy challenges before we even get to that point. Um, you mentioned um, how this rate hike will express itself in in mortgage rates uh, across um, the financial mm -hmm. sector. Uh, I saw today that the fixed rate posted mortgage uh, at Scotiabank reached five uh, percent. Um, so, you know, depending on the size of your mortgage, you could be looking at hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in increased monthly carrying costs. Um, uh, and your, your, your household income situation didn't change no. overnight. Um, and, and so your food costs have gone up, your gas costs have gone up again. It's you're having to service that mortgage debt with less disposable income because inflation has reached into your pocket and yanked out, I don't know, 6% of your wealth in the last 12 months. It, 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 exactly. And we, we know even before um, uh, the current bout of inflation that a lot of Canadian households were you know, basically maxed out, that they were living something like paycheck to paycheck. So now you have a few hundred dollars or a thousand dollar increase in your mortgage payment. Holy smokes, guys, um, that that could have significant financial implications. And as I say, it could have um, pretty major uh, political economy ones. And so, you know, that that is, I think, it's such an important point to emphasize that one of the reasons, Rudyard, that you've been raising concerns about these interest rates is 
precisely this point that now we're going to have to steer the car in the opposite direction so sharply um, as opposed to a kind of more moderate uh, approach over the past few years um, that we're going to put, you know, possibly put the economy into recession and certainly put um, uh, households into uh, difficult circumstances. So there was a real, there's a real kind of cost um, to the choices that we've made. And, and just to go back to a point that you raised, uh, those choices were basically free of free from debate or yeah. contention. And, um, you know, free I think from discussion, largely, ex I mean, exactly, yeah, they were kind of sac I don't know, it's like, it's like some, it's like waiting for a new pope and what color smoke comes out of the chimney. This is how we respond to. And again, I, I don't want to, it's not that I'm anti the central banks. It's just traditionally they've had a different role. They haven't, they haven't over the majority of my lifetime been this deeply involved in the economy in terms of what I was talking about, this suppression, this artificial suppression of rates, this mucking around with the price signal, these really essential things that allow capitalism to work. And we've had no conversation about this, Stuart. It, it strikes me as like it, this just really important public policy issue. And it's not that I want to have the Pierre Polyev elbows up, you know, throwing banana peels at, at Tiff Mecklen at the Bank of Canada, but it's, and I get the importance of the independence of central banks. It's been one of the economic, you know, principles that has served us exceedingly well since the Great Depression, but it just seems like we need a recalibration. The bank, in effect, needs to kind of put these tools back in its toolbox yes. and stop reaching for them every single time the economy, you know, has a scare, a flutter. I mean, we haven't had a recession in this country in 20 odd years. I mean, I don't know what, what's wrong with having a recession, like a lot of crappy businesses go out of business. That's what you want. You want new businesses to emerge with new business ideas uh, in the place of these crappy businesses who've been sitting here as zombies surviving off these low interest rates. Yeah, you should sell that message to the Jean Charest campaign and see if they can use the, let's have a recession. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that's right. And I think part of this is that, you know, you don't want to have the, the Pierre Polyev framed discussion. Um, but if you don't have the discussion properly, that's what you get. And we saw the same thing with the pandemic. We had a lot of measures to fight the pandemic. A lot of them, normal people out there didn't agree with, but they couldn't really say it out loud. And then you have a bunch of truckers in downtown Ottawa. Um, yeah. I, this is just what happens. We need to talk about these things or they come out through some kind of, you know, you know, valve somewhere else. So Sean, that would be my final point of this. You know, the United States, there has been a sharp debate about the central bank. And I don't mean in the context of a populist debate, I actually mean a, a lively debate between prominent economists, you know, newspapers like the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times of London and others about what has been characterized as a policy mistake by the US Federal Reserve not to have raised rates earlier, running the economy too hot for too long, creating this, not managing, as you eloquently put it at the beginning, this balance between supply and demand. Yet, I don't know, why do we not have these conversations in, in Canada? Like, why are we incapable, Sean, of having a sophisticated policy conversation about one of the most important institutions in our country? I, I think it goes back to 
uh, in a way, and I'm only saying this partly facetiously, um, the James Coyne, John Diefenbaker uh, right. controversy. Remind, remind listeners of that, because that's, that's Andrew Coyne's father, by the way. And, and, and of course, the, the, he, the government at, of the day had a, a different view about uh, the right monetary policy approach, and um, he ultimately uh, was removed from the position as, uh, as head of the central bank, and it created a, a scandal, a, you know, questions around the independence of uh, our monetary policy authority, the central bank. And I think ever since then, uh, it's the, the idea that uh, the central bank is hands off um, from politics has just become, um, you know, one of these prevailing wisdoms in Ottawa that that is shared by the different parties, by journalists and but by it's not even politics, Sean, I guess that's my beef is that it's the media and maybe this is for you, Stuart, the media doesn't even really. I don't know, it's I mean, we have David Rosenberg, I guess, but we don't we don't really seem to have voices of authority who are challenging our institutions. It seems like in this country, whether it's COVID, central banking, a whole bunch of important policy, the future of healthcare, you know, after a global pandemic, you know, I get it. There's like, you know, weekend, uh, you know, 3000, 4,000 word essays in the Globe and Mail that put me to sleep on these topics, but where, you know, where the, where's the public civic culture that creates accountability out of, you know, contestation. Yeah. I, I think I can explain it in, in terms of the media, which is that, you know, this happens in the U S bigger country, but this it's, there's a lot more people there. Um, in Canada, the media is extremely clubby because you have to be, um, right. If you want to get a job, you need to not offend people. And the people who do tend to end up paying for it. Um, sometimes they don't even know they're paying for it. Um, and I wonder to what extent that atmosphere and that kind of stuff happens in other professions. So economists, you know, academic yeah. economists, I know they probably suffer consequences if they well, go the bank outside. economists, the Canadian bank economists never say anything. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what I see in the media too. Um, right. Small country, everyone knows everyone and you pay the price if you dissent. And you never know who's, who's maybe going to be your next boss or employer as people <laughs> yes. cycle from the media into PR and GR firms that go work for the banks. We have multiple clerks of the Privy Council who've now gone into you know, the Canadian banking sector, lots of former politicians also working in banking, Sean. I don't know. It just, it disappoints me. I mean, that's part of the reason why we're doing the hub is to try to shake up the pop, the conversation a bit and respectfully and with accuracy and facts kind of challenge some of this institutional group think, but boy, Sean, I feel like what's that new fee expression of doing something into the wind. I'm not going to say it on air, <laughs> but it kind of feels like that some days. Well, as you say, good good thing we have the hub, and you know, this week we celebrated our first yeah. full year of publication. Uh, congratulations to the two of you and the rest of the team. And you know, I think the market is speaking. We now have um, you know ten thousand five hundred and counting subscribers, and I I think that partly reflects the fact that we're prepared, you know, dispassionately, thoughtfully, but willingly to challenge um, some of these issues that for too long. Um, have gone, um, you know, undebated, uncontested. Um, we've we've published articles on monetary policy. Uh, we, in fact, we did a series in the lead up to the government's renewal of the current um, inflation um, targeting mandate. We remember we did a piece early on by one of our best contributors, Howard Anglin, on the role of immigration 
in driving up housing prices, which is just completely verboten um, yes. in the housing policy debate in Canada. So, um, you, you know, I think, guys, it's been a, a great first year. And if anything, this conversation only reinforces uh, why we're needed and um, how much work we have ahead of us. And one good <laughs> thing uh, about the kind of current moment is it's a target-rich environment uh, <laughs> for an organization that's prepared to um, turn its fire to, you know, to these rings of issues. Yeah. And I would just say for the benefit of the hub community, you know, talking about sticking one's head up above the gunnel, um, you know, hats off to Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, who left a very well-paid, secure job at the National Post to come out of the blue uh, and work at the hub to start us up as our editor-in-chief when Sean and I uh, invited him to begin to spearhead uh, the team. So Stuart, thank you for taking that plunge with us over a year ago. And uh, how many articles, I don't, it's, it's, it's a mind numbing number to think the amount of content that you've edited and produced in the last year. Yeah, we, we also count it differently every time. So I have all these numbers in my head, like <laughs> it's hundreds or over a thousand, whatever you want to go with, whatever. It's a big number. Depends how self-congratulatory I want to be at the time. <laughs> Okay. Well, look, guys, great to be in a conversation with you this week. Let's see if Elon Musk has bought Twitter by this time next Friday. <laughs> I wouldn't hold your bet, but I'm enjoying watching him uh, taunt the Saudis who seem to have an ownership stake in Twitter and don't like the idea of Elon Musk uh, taking over. Wow. What a great story to follow. Anyway, uh, be well, uh, be safe, enjoy your weekend, and we'll, we'll talk next Friday. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of The Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, Check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the Donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt, and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a Hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.